Hello, everyone. This is Raise Your Voice as part of the D-Raise Bay Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brett Rutherford, and joining me on this week's show is D-Raise Bay writer Brian Menendez. Brian, what's going on, man? Oh, man, everything's good. How about you, Brett? Well, it's good. You know, I, I, I talked to Jamal last week, and we were both kind of feeling the, the dog days of spring training. I did yeah, great, get a chance great show. to... <laughs> thank you. Uh, I did get a chance to ask him what his favorite part of spring training was. So now, Brian, I, uh, I've got to ask you, I've asked everybody else, what, what is your favorite part of spring training? Uh, yeah, so this might be an unpopular take, but uh, for me, man, the, the best part of spring training is when it's over. Uh, I think something about when the games actually matter uh, is when I just I really get locked in. Um, I, I like the first couple, maybe week or two of spring training when we get looks at guys that we normally wouldn't otherwise get looks at um, because, you know, once the minor league season starts, those games are a lot harder to follow. Um, but for me, yeah, I, yeah, the, the best part of spring training is when it's over and then when the games start to matter again. I, I definitely, I feel you. I get your sentiment. Uh, I, like I said, I talked to Jamal last week. We have reached the, if there are such a thing, the dog days of spring training where you get that, that first week where everyone's reporting in that first game and it's such a novel feeling, right? Every, you know, everything's coming back. You get to see a game on TV. Maybe you hear your, your team's broadcasters. I know I enjoyed hearing Dwayne's stats again on the radio, Dave and Andy. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. But you get to the you know, halfway point of spring training and you kind of come to the realization once a year that these are not great baseball games to watch. <laughs> I think spring training still beats out a lot of the other major sports preseasons, but, but yeah, I agree with you. I can't wait for the regular season to start. Like you said, you get a chance to look at a couple different guys. A lot of guys though, that you are excited to look at. They're not going to be on the major league roster, at least not right away. Uh, And then your attention kind of turns to who is on the major league roster. And the big thing, Jamal said it last week, who is staying healthy. And again, I'll continue to knock on wood. For the most part, especially compared to some other teams, the Rays have stayed relatively healthy. We did get news of a G-man Troy knee injury. That's going to keep him out for 7 to 10 days. They'll reassess then and determine whether or not he's going to be ready for opening day. Brian, if if G-man Troy goes down and he is not the opening day starting first baseman, who do you think would kind of step up and, and, and take some of those innings? Well, if... G-Man Choi uh, goes down for an extended period of time. I think that that opens uh, that opens up some at bats for Yoshi Susugo, which I think that a lot of Rays fans are kind of clamoring for. Uh, you wish it wouldn't be under the circumstance of an injury to G-Man Choi, um, but also, I mean, do you really want him playing anywhere else on the field? I think that's important to think about too. Um, we know that the Rays have some other guys that are going to play first base, whether it's Mike Brasso, Yandy Diaz. Um, I'm probably missing some guys. Maybe they, they can experiment with Austin Meadows. Um, but Lau, yeah. I think there's a possibility. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah, the, the Rays can definitely weather it. We know that. Um, you hate to see a guy like G Manchoy go down. Um, but like I said, it could open the door for some other guys to get at bats. I, I think, and, and Jamal kind of said it, uh, we'll, you're worried if you're worried about roster crunching in spring training, or at least the Rays are this year more than most years. And oftentimes these things work themselves out. Obviously you're not, you're not hoping for an injury to anyone, but if G man Troy 
was on the IL. That does kind of make Yoshi Tsutsugo's role more clear. He'd probably get more at-bats at first base. Uh, like you said, Yanni Diaz, Mike Brasso are there. But if you're looking for a left-handed hitter, the other possibility, I think, would be Brandon Lau if you move some yes. things around the infield. Um, that Yeah, it, w- it would suck for G-Man. It doesn't seem like it's a major knee injury, but it definitely is one of those that could potentially linger and, and have him miss maybe a few games at the start of the year. The next injury, another one that would kind of make things easier on the front office in terms of de- determining what that opening day roster is going to look like. That is Brett uh, Phillips, who left uh, today's game on the day of recording. This is Sunday the 14th. Uh, with hamstring tightness. And Brett Phillips, that's kind of been the one roster spot. He seems like he might be the odd man out by the time April 1st comes around. He was the hero in Game 4 of the World Series, but now he's kind of like the 26th man on the bench. And the third center fielder, maybe the first pinch runner on the team. Yeah. But if if, if And he's out of options. You can't send him to Durham. Yes. You, you've either got to cut him loose, trade him, or put him on your big league roster. Uh, obviously, Brian, we don't know a whole lot about this injury. The game wasn't on TV. We're only getting some of the reports uh, from from the beat writers that were there. But Brett Phillips, do you, how much do you think this impacts the big league roster if he's not there on opening day? I mean, if it's not if he's not there on opening day, I mean, I think I think if this is a you know medium to long term injury, I think that makes the roster question a little bit easier for the Rays. Again, you don't want this to be the circumstance in which that sort of thing happens. Um, I quite like Breck Phillips. I really hope that he makes the opening day roster. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't carry three center fielders. I mean, if you're the Rays, you can, I mean, the Rays do some weird things. Um, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of people think that Randy Rosarena is capable of playing, you know, at least, you know, a below average to eat average center field too. So, um, it's, yeah, I mean, it, uh, in a vacuum, it's tough to, uh, manufacture a roster spot for Brett Phillips. Um, I would love to see a situation where all five of the Rays outfielders are on the team on opening day. So that's just, that's me, but I, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not tasked with these decisions, luckily. <laughs> um, so yeah. And Brian, lastly, before we get into the, the meat of this episode, the reason why you're here to talk about pitching, I kind of just want to get your take on, say everyone tells me, say G-Man's ready to go opening day, say Phillips is, is the same. How, who would be the odd man out on the roster for you? Would it, you know, you're looking at guys like Satsugo, Phillips, maybe Mike Brasso is on that chopping block list. Maybe Joey Wendell. Who would you see as the, as the kind of the, the odd man out in that situation? Oof, that's, that's really interesting. I, I would say that, I would say that it has to be Mike Brasso, not because I don't think he's extremely valuable, but I think he's a guy that has options and he has, such a niche role. He's, you know, on the wrong side of a platoon. Um, and a lot of it comes down to the schedule. So if the Rays look at the schedule and they, they assess and they say, you know, April and May, we're not going to see a ton of left-handed pitching. It doesn't make sense to carry him. Um, also, he, we know that a Kevin Kiermeyer trade, even though it's unlikely that it's going to happen this, you know, we're, we're in mid March. Um, that's still kind of lingering. So I think there's a lot of factors at play, um, again, I'm not the one who's tasked with these decisions. Thankfully, I don't have to lose any sleep over it. Um, <laughs> but like I said, I would err on the side of carrying Brett Phillips on the roster. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's just me. Yeah, I mean, you look at Brett Phillips. He provides elite defense. Like I'm talking, you know, upper echelon of the major leagues. 
Um, so, you know, it's the same thing with Brett Manuel Margot and Kevin Kiermaier, which kind of, in a way, devalues Brett Phillips because Margot's probably going to start in right field. Kiermaier's probably going to start in center. Brett Phillips isn't really the t- and, you're, and you're pretty comfortable with Randy Rose right and left. Brett Phillips is a nice guy to have, but when you have already two elite outfield defenders, you're maybe less inclined to take Brett Phillips. Uh, and, and I don't know what type of value he's out there. A lot, you know, every other team knows that he's out of options, so he could be designated for assignment and someone else could scoop him up off of the waiver wire. Brasso is an interesting one because if you look at it, you've got Lau at second, Adamas at short. Uh, Brasso, can, Brasso can play first or third. He is versatile. Where Yanni Diaz is really more of just a corner infielder, maybe more of a DH on most days. He has slimmed down a little bit. Uh, I, I kind of like Brasso's versatility, uh, but like like I said, uh, like like you said, Brett Phillips, I would love to have him on that opening day roster for more reasons than one. One, I think he's a good baseball player, and two, because of the personality he's kind of become in the clubhouse and in the media for the Rays, uh, really after game four of the World Series. I mean, we saw his dance moves all throughout the playoffs. <laughs> he has the big moment. And a little bit in the outfield. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, <laughs> when he was, and then, can, we, can we just go off on a tangent really quick? That, I mean, honestly, that moment actually kind of made me rethink my previous spring training take because that's the kind of stuff that you'll never see in the regular season, at least yeah. not live when a player's in the outfield. So that was just a ton of fun. I mean, that was like one of the few spring training games that I able that I was able to catch. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to go off on that brief, that brief tangent because that, that was just so much fun. Yeah, definitely. So Before we get into the meat of this episode, we're going to step aside for a quick break, and we'll be right back in just a moment. And we're back on Raise Your Voice with our very special guest today, Brian Menendez. And Brian, you are one of the pitching experts at DRaysBay.com. And so that's, you know, we've talked a lot about during spring training and during the offseason how this pitching staff was going to be constructed because we know the Rays do things in a very unique way. They don't really see this as a five-man rotation or at least I don't think they're going to. I think they're going to see it as nine or ten guys eating up a, a huge bulk of the innings and then piece together the other outs however you can. So as one of the pitching experts, though, Brian, I wanted to have you on here and talk a little bit about pitch design and some of the the physics and the art of pitching. We've talked a lot about statistics, but really kind of just break it down because they are becoming more integrated in baseball media and baseball broadcasts and, and help people understand things like spin rate and spin efficiency to, as you go into this season, have a better understanding of kind of what you're watching on TV. So Brian, why don't you uh, teach us a lesson here? Like, first off, <laughs> I, first off, let me start with this. Yeah. Let's, let's start. What, let's start with what you know first. I, I Like I know what spin rate is and I know certain numbers. That's a good spin rate. That's a good number to have, but I, I, I'm assuming it has something to do with the spin of the ball, but I really don't know exactly what it means. So if you could just teach me what exactly spin rate means in the simplest of terms. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's so much that goes into kind of the art of pitch design. I've kind of always been obsessed with, uh, how pitches move. Um, and this is something that's evolved so drastically since I think 2015 is when we were really talking about 2015 to 2017 is when we were really talking about spin rate. I think the Astros were kind of at the forefront of that, um, you know, working with guys like Justin Verlander and uh, getting guys like Ryan Presley, just guys who have a ton of just a lot of spin like RPMs. 
Um, and where we've kind of gone from that is to spin efficiency and pitch tunneling. And there's all these buzz phrases, but um, I'm excited to kind of be on here and just to kind of just talk about how those things work just because I write about it a lot on the site. And sometimes I feel like I'm either having to re-explain everything in all of my posts or, um, I, you know, it's just, it's, I'm not able to explain it in a, a, a way that like really makes sense to somebody who's never heard these things. Um, so you, you mentioned spin rate and you said a lot is good. Um, that is true for certain pitches, right? Um, the main way that we understand how pitches move up until recently, and I'll get into other ways pitches move later on, uh, is something called um, Magnus effect, right? So I have a baseball here. Um, I know if you're listening, you, you can't <laughs> see what I'm doing, but if you have a baseball nearby, pick it up and you can follow along, or you can just you know try your best to listen to what I'm saying. So if I can illustrate how Magnus effect, uh, Magnus effect works with the baseball, so pretend I'm throwing you a fastball, Brett. I'm the pitcher, you're the hitter, right? I throw this fastball with perfect backspin, right? So what you see is the front of the baseball. The seams on the front of the baseball are moving in an upward direction. So what's happening is Magnus effect is influenced by the seams on the front of the baseball, right? The seams that are facing you as the hitter, right? So those seams moving upwards is going to make that fastball rise, right? And I say rise using air quotes because the face, the, the baseball doesn't actually rise. When we mean rise, we mean that it's resisting gravity, right? Now, if I throw a curveball, it's the same thing, but the opposite direction. So if I throw a curveball with topspin, the seams of the front of the baseball are moving down, which means this baseball is now going to fall faster than the rate of gravity. The reason why this is important is because when we spin the ball in these two directions, we're, mac we're maximizing the Magnus effect. So if I throw a fastball with perfect backspin and I'm throwing a curveball with perfect topspin, I'm basically getting, I'm maximizing the movement separation between those two pitches. And that's incredibly hard for a hitter to pick up on and hit. Um, because what we've also noticed is um, vertical movement on a fastball is harder to see, right? So that's why guys with, um, with a lot of vertical movement on their fastball are very more sought after um, than pitchers who don't, uh, for example. So now, as far as how to get Magnus effect, there's, there's a couple different ways to do it. The first one, as you mentioned, was spin rate. So if I have tons of spin, like a lot of RPMs, you know, maybe I use pine tar, right. Um, <laughs> or some other type of sticky substance talking to you, Garrett Cole, Trevor Bauer. Um, so increasing the amount of spin is one way I can increase my Magnus effect. Right. So as far as guys on the raise, a guy like Tyler Glasnow has tons of spin on his curveball, So that's why he's able to get tons of vertical break. Um, but what's been discovered is past a certain point, at least on a fastball, past 2,500 RPMs, the, the, um, the spin doesn't really affect the Magnus effect anymore, right? What does have more effect on the Magnus effect is the efficiency of the spin. What that means is we're going to take this baseball again. I'm going to throw a fastball. If it's moving perfectly backspin, if I have perfect backspin on it, right, 
that's going to give me the most Magnus effect. Now, if this ball is moving a little bit like this, right? A little bit of gyro. That's what, that's what that's called. Gyroscopic spin, right? Then I'm not getting the most, um, Magnus effect on the fastball that I possibly can. Now bring it back to Tyler glass. Now that's why he gets that horizontal cut on his fastball because his fastball's not that efficient, right? Now his fastball is great. He should not change a thing, but that's how we're able to explain the movement on a pitch like that. Now, as far as guys on the Rays who have very efficient spin in their fastball, guys like Nick Anderson, guys like Colin Poche come to mind uh, from the right side and the left side. Um, a, a newer Rays pitcher, Jeffrey Springs, he has a lot of uh, efficient spin on his fastball. We're talking about like 97% spin efficiency. Um, for context, 100% would be 100% would be perfect uh, backspin or perfect topspin on a curveball, right? Um, so those guys are able to maximize their vertical movement on their fastball and get a lot of swings and misses without a ton of velocity, without a ton of, uh, RPM spin. Um, and, and yeah, that, that, that's really, that's really about it. Uh, any questions so far <laughs> So for, for a guy like Tyler glass now, which who primarily yes. is, and this might change this year, a two pitch guy where he's got the great fastball and in that, that curveball that just completely falls off a table. When you've got great vertical movement contrasted between the fastball and your curveball, like how does that make him so much more effective as just a two pitch pitcher? Yes. So that brings us to another concept. And I'm actually glad you answered this or you asked that question because it kind of uh, moves us into this direction. So one of the most, uh, one of the, the reason why Tyler Glasnow is so successful is because he's able to tunnel his pitches, right? So if you were to pull up a heat map of Tyler Glasnow's pitches, you'll notice that his fastballs primarily are going to be in the upper half, upper third of the zone, probably a little bit above the zone. And he's able to get a lot of swings and misses there. And then his curveball is going to be in the bottom zone below the zone. And he's able to get a lot of swings and misses there. The concept there, uh, the thought process there is that when he throws his fastball and when he throws his curveball, those two pitches are going to look the same to a hitter out of his hand. Right. So when a hitter sees these pitches at the point that he has to make a decision, whether he's going to swing at the pitch, that's when the two pitches are going to look wildly different, right? That's called the tunnel point. So that tunnel point is um, where, where the hitter has to make that decision. Now, it, here, here's why that matters. So if Tyler Glasnow threw a lot of low fastballs, right, the hitter would very easily be able to pick that up because the fastball is going to start down out of his hand and the curveball is going to start up out of his hand. So even though these two pitches are still going to be great, the hitter can pick up on the difference in the trajectory out of his hand, and that makes those pitches easier to hit. So the 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 way that Tyler Glasnow can make those two pitches look exactly the same, that's what makes it so deceptive, and that's what makes it so hard to hit. Um, and the fact that he throws ninety eight miles an hour just makes it that it makes it even more unfair. <laughs> now you wrote a little bit about Rich Hill's spin rate. How does that make him? Uh, such an effective pitcher over the last few years late on in his career. He's one of the oldest race players ever. Yeah. So Rich Hills is another fantastic study because he's able to do what he does without a ton of velocity. Um, he does have a lot of high spin uh, and he has a lot of efficient spin, but what he 
does better than most pitchers that I've seen or studied is that he's able to mirror his spin. And what that means is not only does he get a lot of efficiency and he gets a lot of spin, but the idea is hitters can, uh, hitters can pick up on different seam orientations, right? Hitters are not just, you know, great athletes. They also have great vision. I think that's, that's, that's a very underrated quality of, of major league hitters is that they have impeccable vision and they see pitches and they've seen hundreds of thousands. I might be exaggerating, but I might not <laughs> hundreds of thousands of fastballs and hundreds of thousands of curveballs. So for example, if a two pitch pitcher throws a fastball with a four seam orientation and a curveball with a two seam orientation, hitters can see the difference, right? And if a hitter can pick it up, uh, and if they're looking for it, that, you know, that, that ruins the deception aspect. What Rich Hill is able to do is his fastball is thrown, pick up the baseball again. The fastball is thrown with perfect backspin on a certain axis and his curveball is thrown with certain top spin on the same axis. So hitters can pick up on the different seam orientations, but hitters can't pick up the direction in which the ball is moving. Hitters cannot see top spin versus backspin. They can only see four seam versus two seam. And they can only see, um, you know, if one pitch has a lot of gyro spin versus um, more efficient backspin or top spin. I love that. And, and, and Brian, talk to me, are there any other new pitchers to this Rays team that I think that you think have, you know, they, they use the most out of spin rate and spin efficiency and are really kind of embody a modern pitcher. Yeah, so we've talked a little bit about um, Jeffrey Springs. Uh, we've talked a little bit about Tyler Glasnow. We know that uh, Nick Anderson uh, does this really well too. Um, and I think what the Rays have been able to do with certain pitchers is kind of take pitchers who have fastballs that may not have that uh, high spin efficiency and kind of straighten them out and um, – make improvements as far as like getting swings and misses. So Jalen Beeks is a perfect example. I know he's going, he's rehabbing from Tommy Johnson, surgery, but he's somebody I wrote about last year. Uh, he kind of jumped up to, I think like 92 to 95% spin efficiency. And what he was able to do is that he didn't increase his velocity or he didn't add spin, but he was able to straighten out the spin on his fastball and he worked it up in the zone. And I think at one point before he went down, he was what he had one of the highest whiff rates, in all of baseball. So these are those things that the, uh, the rays are able to do, uh, with pitchers. Now it's not going to work for everybody. Like I said, Tyler Glasnow has, doesn't have a lot of spin, spin efficiency on his fastball. He shouldn't change a thing. Right. Um, it's more about, you know, what, what, what does the, what, what does, what result does the pitcher want to get? Um, and the Rays are able to, I guess, kind of say, you know, hey, this is how we can achieve that result. Um, one of the, I think, newer concepts in pitch design that's, um, that's coming out right now is we talked a little bit about how uh, baseball pitches move because of Magnus effect. Uh, the new thing that's being discovered, and this was, uh, this was discovered by a dude named Barton Smith, who's a professor of mechanical engineering at Utah State. Um, what he has kind of discovered, and this is what is being talked a lot about right now, is we know that Magnus Effect talks about the seams on the front of the baseball. This concept called seam-shifted wake 
the hypothesis, the hypothesis is that the seams on the back of the baseball can actually make the pitch move as well. Right. And this is, this has been seen, uh, the most on, uh, sinkers and, uh, change-ups that are thrown with, uh, two seam orientations. So, um, that's something I think the Rays are going to definitely study and, uh, uh, are going to be using with their pitchers a lot this year. Going back to Colin Poche, like, I think to kind of make it simple, you look at a guy and it's been a while since he pitched and it's going to be a little bit longer until he sees a big league bound again, but he doesn't have a high nineties fastball No, and he can still, you know, his best pitch is a fastball up in the zone. And you talk about, it's not what you, what you would traditionally think of a guy that just blows fastballs up in the zone past big time hitters. But it seems to be like whenever, anytime Colin Poche, when he lets his fastball get down in the zone or he tries to bring in any other pitches, they're just not nearly as successful. Right. So um, one of the things that was funny about Colin Poche and like, like I, like I grew up, uh, you know, pitching in little league in high school and the conventional wisdom is, you know, keep the ball down. When Colin Poche threw his fastball down, it got crushed. Yeah. So he basically defies all the conventional wisdom. You know, he, and it's funny because, um, again, he's a guy that doesn't throw with a ton of velocity. He doesn't throw with, you know, he doesn't have a lot of spin, but it's because of the spin efficiency, because he's able to maximize his vertical Magnus movement that he's able to get so many swings and misses by throwing the fastball um, up in the zone. And it's interesting because of guys like uh, Colin Poche, and I know I mentioned Nick Anderson. I keep going back to him too. It's it's because of the 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 Rays' understanding of spin efficiency, which is what makes guys like that available to them, right? Because if Nick Anderson had twenty six hundred RPMs on his fastball, he's probably not available to the Rays. Somebody else would have probably already acquired him. Um, but the 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 Rays being able to pick up on these things makes guys like that more available because you know teams didn't pick up on this until a little bit later. And, and Brian, any other, any other guys, pitchers specifically you, you, you want to shout out in terms of guys that you think emulate these mindsets? Yeah. So I want to go back a little bit to seam shifted weight because that's kind of like the newest, hottest, like buzz phrase and pitch design. Um, so there, there's a couple of guys who kind of jump out uh, uh, at me as far as these types of movements. Um, Ian wrote a beautiful, uh, piece on the site about Chris Maza. He's probably one of my, one of my favorite guys, as far as looking at this, um, his changeup, uh, falls at the rate of gravity. Now here's why that's important because a changeup normally has backspin. It spins like a fastball, which means that it has Magnus movement. So, uh, so the, the Magnus movement should tell you that that pitch should not fall at the rate of gravity. So there's something else at play which that kind of validates the hypothesis that the seam is pushing that baseball downward, right? So that's the only way that a pitch with backspin can fall at the rate of gravity, right? So Josh Fleming is another one who has a changeup that moves uh, downward at a very high rate. His is almost at the rate of gravity. Um, and the way that you can look at this too is there's a, there's a metric on Baseball Savant uh, player pages uh, called spin-based movement, which measures uh, the spin out of a the pitcher's hand. And then there's observed movement, which is 
the movement based on the original velocity vector. So it basically measures how the pitch actually moved. The way that you can tell that pitchers are getting this effect is if there's a big deviation between these two data points. So I have it pulled up right here um, as far as for the rays. So, um, so Aaron Loop has one of the highest deviations from uh, spin-based movement and observed movement. Um, Aaron Sleggers was too. Uh, I was kind of sad to see him go because he was actually one of the pitchers I was interested in. Uh, Ryan Thompson's a good one too. I think he actually has the most on the team. Uh, Diego Castillo is another one too. Uh, he's got that, he's got that sinking fastball that just like darts, you know, horizontal, uh, horizontally, um, because this effect not only, uh, makes the ball drop vertically, but it also can make the ball move horizontally. So that's important too. Um, and, uh, Chris Mazza, he's, he's another one too. Um, so it's going to be really interesting. And if you look at like how the Rays have constructed their bullpen and starting rotations, like you, you kind of see like the Rays aren't carrying a bunch of, you know, high octane fastball pitchers like they were in 2018, 2019. Um, I think in 2019, the Rays had the starting rotation, I think had one of the highest uh, average fastball velocity velocities in baseball. You're not going to see that this year, not with, uh, you know, uh, guys like Ryan Yarbrough and guys like Josh Fleming and guys like that, you know, taking, taking up so many innings. Um, same thing in the bullpen. I know like Kevin Cash famously, uh, coined the phrase, the stable of, you know, guys who can throw 98, but really the stable was two guys deep. It was Diego Castillo and Pete Fairbanks, you know, Nick Anderson really, he, he throws more, you know, 94 to 96 and, you know, John Curtis, who's with the Marlins now, he was a little more, more 94, 95 and everybody else was kind of in like the low to mid nineties. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's really, we'll, give, it's, we'll forgive Kevin cash. He was a little heated that night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, not to say that all of those guys aren't capable of throwing 98. They're just not – that's just not what they pitch at. Yeah. And then, Brian, before we move into kind of the final part of, of this episode, let's talk a little bit about the pitching staff construction for 2021. Like I mentioned, yeah. I don't think this is going to be a traditional five-man rotation. If it were to be a five-man rotation, right now roster resource has it projected as Tyler Glasnow, Rich Hill, Chris Archer, Ryan Yarbrough, and Michael Waka. Do you think those are going to be, again, not the only guys that get starts or bulk outings, but do you think those are going to be the first five on the, on the table? Um, I, I, I think it has to be. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's the order that I would go yeah, in. I, I think, I, I think, um, I think based on how the spring has been going, I think it's going to be Glasnow one. I think Waka two. Um, but I mean, I could, I could totally be wrong about that. I like Yarbrough's another as, as a three and then Archer and uh, sorry, Archer and Hill to kind of fill it out. Um, but just because those guys are the, you know, the one through five, that doesn't necessarily mean that um, they're going to be the ones that are getting, you know, like all of the innings, you know, the, uh, this is a team that's also going to have, you know, Cody Reed who can throw multiple innings, um, Colin McHugh who can throw multiple innings, um, if, uh, Josh Fleming makes the, the, the opening day roster, you know, that he can throw multiple innings, um, you know, injuries happen, things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, in a vacuum, I think those are the five that they're going to carry into the season. Um, you know, that the Rays are going to kind of play around with the, the Durham shuttle. Um, I think that they're going to be, uh, probably liberal with the use of the injured list, um, just to, you know, keep guys rested and things like that. 
Um, so it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun to kind of watch them shuffle guys in and out, um, how they navigate the 27 outs, uh, during a game. Um, but yeah, that's just kind of, that's just kind of my idea. I think it's also important to note the Rays will pick an opening day starter. And if, if everyone's healthy, it will be Tyler Glass now. And they still view that as like some sort of symbolic thing. I think most, I think every team in baseball still does that to an extent. But just because the guy who throws opening days on April 1st, which I think is a Thursday, just because the guy that starts on Friday doesn't make him the who the Rays view as the second best pitcher. Oftentimes they'll, they'll plan out their quote unquote rotation based on matchups, based on off days, based on how each guy was stretched out during spring training. It, there's a number of different factors that play into it. So when you're going into that first series uh, against the Marlins and looking at, oh, who, these are the pitching probables, that doesn't mean those are one, two, three. I think it's going to be Ryan Yarbrough as the number two starter, but that doesn't mean he's going to pitch on the day after opening day. Plenty of other factors that go into that. I, I expect at some point, definitely not right away, Colin McHugh could get a th- become a three, four, five inning guy, whether that be as a starter or behind an opener. And Brendan McKay is a guy that's on the mend. You could see him by midseason. We won't be seeing Yanni Torinos, uh, Josh Fleming, Luis Patino, who the Rays obviously like. like. They traded Blake Snell, and he was the main piece coming back. And there's still Trevor Richards, who's still kicking around. Do you think he's going to feature at all this year for the Rays? Uh, you know, I'm coming around on Trevor Richards. One thing that's fascinating about him is that, um, so we talked about spin rate a little bit. So um, the spin on the fastball is supposed to be more than the spin on the changeup. That's like the conventional wisdom surrounding that. Trevor Richards' changeup actually has about 300 more RPMs than his fastball. He's one of maybe five guys in baseball that can do that. Um, I don't know why it's one thing that's baffling. So, uh, to give you some context, um, Devin Williams is another guy whose changeup spins a lot more than, uh, his fastball. Um, and I don't know how much you know about Trevor Williams, Brett, but he won the rookie of the year for the Brewers last mm-hmm. year. Uh, he was just absolutely unfair with his fastball changeup combination. Not to say that, you know, Trevor Richards is, uh, anything close to Devin Williams, but, um, I think that that's an interesting comparison because, um, their fastballs and changeups actually move and spin very similar to one another. And they're like the only two pitchers I know off the top of my head who have that big deviation where their changeups spin more than their fastballs. It, it's really, it's really an anomaly. And what, what were your thoughts on the re-signing of Chaz Rowe? Chaz Rowe. It, it's one of those guys that I named that I really wasn't expecting to return. And he's back, not only back, he's back on a big league deal. Yeah. Uh, I, I really like Chaz Rowe. I, I mean, you know, the, uh, um, you don't see a lot of guys that just have that big sweeping, um, you know, slider like he does. I mean, we saw a little bit from Ryan Thompson. Uh, he, he pitched a lot of big innings for the Rays last year too. Um, but I think Chaz Rowe is just, he's, 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 uh, he's a better, I think, you know, what you're going to get a little bit more from Chaz Rowe. Um, I, I wish he wouldn't walk so many guys. It's kind of stressful watching him pitch, but um, he's another interesting person to talk about as far as pitch design too, because everybody knows about his slider. You know, it's, it's very, very gifable, if you will. Right. Um, but his sinker is actually one of the best in baseball as far as uh, vertical movement. Of well, he gets a lot of sync on that sinker. So that goes back to kind of that um, seam shifted wake idea. Um, his sinker moves down a lot faster than it should. Um, and a lot of people don't know that about him. 
Um, so he's, he's another really interesting pitcher. I love to watch him pitch. Like I said, I wish he wouldn't walk so many guys, but, um, the, the Rays think that there's, you know, something there, they're bringing him back, you know, as, as a 34 year old. Um, and he's, he's one of the longest tenured Rays at this point too. It's hard to even, it's hard to even believe that. <laughs> yeah. Um, sure. but yeah, he's, he's been what, since like the, the, the end of 2018. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, that's that's something I just learned <laughs> because it's something that you know, you ever you ever like think about like something that you knew but like you didn't like know and then it surprises you that you know that thing that just happened to me with Chazro. Yeah, no, I mean you look at the <laughs> team and there's still so many young or guys that are just new to the team right now in the um, roster resource projected lineup versus right-handed pitching were I think only one of the players was drafted by the race two, Brandon Lau and, and Kevin Kiermaier. Like Kevin Kiermaier, right? Insane. Um, so, yeah, really interesting. Chaz Rowe he is one of the grizzled veterans on this big league team. We're going to take one more break, and then we'll come back and we'll play the predictions game, similar to the game we played with Darby, but I've got some interesting questions for Brian. Oh, boy. <laughs> and we're back on Raise Your Voice. We've got some 2021 seasons predictions from Brian Menendez. Darby and I kind of played a game of over under innings totals with the Rays pitching staff, but these are a little bit more specific questions. And Brian, we've talked about the pitchers all episode long. So let's shift over to the position players. Who do you think is going to lead this 2021 Rays team in plate appearances? Um, This was a tough one. It could be any of a lot of guys, Um, you know, I mean, it, it depends on health and, you know, spot in the lineup and things like that. But I, I'm going to go with Austin Meadows. I don't know if anybody said that yet. Um, he seems to be in great shape. Um, they've been batting him leadoff, which I think is awesome. Uh, if they continue that during the season, um, there's no reason why he can't uh, lead the team in plate appearances. By definition, if you hit first, you get the most plate appearances. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to go most plate appearances on the team, Austin Meadows. I like that one, and especially because I, I, I do think he's going to be the designated hitter a lot of the time, and you can throw him in left or right field. I'm not uh, too pleased when that happens. I, I'm very down on Austin Meadows' defense, uh, and I've said that way too many times on this podcast. Yeah. But as the designated hitter, especially in the leadoff spot, you're right. He's definitely in a good spot. Right now, Fangraphs has Randy Arozarena as the leader in plate appearances. I think that's mainly because he's going to be the left fielder every day left-handed pitcher, right-handed pitcher, it doesn't matter. They haven't projected at 623. I think that's quite a bit. I think I think that's really generous. I, I think it all depends on how we we may have to temper our expectations on Randy Rosarena just just a bit. I think that he could overtake Meadows if he proves that he is every bit as good as he was during the playoffs because he, if he does, he's going to force himself into probably the number two spot in the lineup. Um. But yeah, anyway, anyway, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. Brandon, Brandon Lau is another candidate for this. Sure, yeah. But, but then you look further down the lineup, and obviously guys that seven, eight, nine, like statistically, they just won't get as many plate appearances. Right. But you look at Willie Adamas or Kevin Kiermaier, those, there's your everyday shortstop and your everyday center fielder, at least at the start of the season. Now, both of these guys have been named in some trade rumors, and they both have kind of clear successors. Obviously, at shortstop, you've got Wander Franco. Kevin Kiermaier's got Manuel Margot, Brett Phillips, Josh Lowe, Vidal Brujan right behind him. If they're on the team for the whole year, 
and again, as long as Kiermaier stays healthy, these are two guys that could rack up more plate appearances than anybody else because, totally. yeah, you're going to give them their day off here and there, but you're not taking them out of the lineup. You're not platooning them at their respective positions. Uh, so I'm going to say Willie Adamas, uh, assuming they don't trade him. I, I, I like wow. that one. I could see him getting close to, to 600 or maybe even eclipsing that 600 number. Because I just look at some of these other guys. Brandon Lau should be mostly an everyday player. Uh, G-Man Choice probably is going to get platooned. We know that. Manuel Margot probably to an extent as well, depending on how he starts the season uh, they, as they try to figure out Yoshi Tsutsugo's um, plan. But obviously, like, Mike Zanino can't win it as a catcher. He won't get enough there. But, yeah, I'll go with Willie Adamas. Uh, Interesting. Next- Let's talk about, and we'll we'll think specifically about position players again here. Wins above replacement, and I know there's multiple different calculations for wins above replacement, but we'll go. We'll just say the the Fangraphs calculation. Who would you have as the top raised position player in WAR? Wins above replacement. That's very interesting because I'm actually going to go with Willie Adamas here. Um, I think that we know that the defense is uh, good. Um, the bat was good last year. I don't know if he puts together uh, a 124 WRC plus again. Um, I think that last year there was just too much swing and miss. Um, the BAPIP was really high, so uh, it was kind of floated by that. But um, with the defense, and if he's just like a slightly – an everyday shortstop with above average defense and a 105 to 110 WRC plus – that's pretty comfortably a four win player. If he's anything better than that, we're talking about, you know, in the five, six win range. I mean, he accumulated 1.5 war last year um, in 2020 in 54 games. If you extrapolate that, which, you know, that's tough to do, but you know, let's just multiply by three, that's four and a half wins. Um, So I think, like I said, you know, if the, if the offense is slightly above league average, we know what the defense is. Uh, we know he's going to play there every day, righties and lefties. So long as Wander Franco does not force himself into shortstop, which I don't think that's going to happen this year. Um, I think, yeah, Willie Adamas could lead this team and wins above replacement could be the most valuable player. Um, and that could set the raise up perfectly to make a move on him. Yeah. I, I really like that answer and I'm kind of jealous. You took it before me. I could tell it's my <laughs> podcast. I make the rules, but I won't go with Willie Adamas. Um, I'll, I'll take, this is a tough one. I'll go with Brandon Lau. I, I really think this is a guy that's coming into form in his big league career. And and you just look at what he did. Like specifically, you look at his K rate, which dropped from 34.6% in 2019, all the way down to 25.9% in 2020. I know he only had 224 plate appearances, but in those plate appearances, he had 14 home runs. He had a 150 WRC plus and was had 2.4 wins above replacement in only 56 games. Uh, in 2019, he played half a season and had 2.6 wins above replacement. This is one of the better second basemen in all of baseball, and I, I think that's only going to continue this year. I think we're, we're only kind of at the tip of the iceberg for Brandon Lau, and another guy that's going to get enough plate appearances, enough opportunities to be in that discussion. So I'll take, yeah. I'll take Brandon Lau. Yeah, if, if only to uh, prove uh, fellow colleague Jim Turt, Jim Turvey wrong. Yes. Uh, Brandon, <laughs> Brandon Lau is just going to keep, keep improving, keep improving that walk rate, bro. Yeah, definitely. And as he becomes a better hitter, you expect that walk rate to improve. Yes. Uh, let, let's go back to the pitchers and we'll, we'll transition back over to the pitching staff. 
And we mentioned plate appearances, but now let's let's talk about the innings. Who do you think is going to lead this Rays team in innings pitched? Uh, I'm going to go with a really hot take here. I'm going to go with Chris Archer. Um, I really liked what I saw out of him in his debut. I thought that that was like that was that that warmed my heart seeing him back in a in a in a Rays uniform. Um, outside of my feelings, let's not forget that. Chris Archer, when he was with the Rays in his prime, I know he's not that anymore, but he threw 200 innings year after year after year after year. Um, and it's not like his pitch repertoire has like changed or declined drastically. He's still coming at you with the same pitches. Now the race pitch philosophy with starters might change, but I think more than anybody on this staff, I think that the Rays know what they're going to get with Chris Archer. So they might let him go five or six innings more than they might with some of the other pitchers in the starting rotation, just because they, they, you know, they know more or less what's, what the outcome is going to be, um, you know, with, with a, with a guy like Tyler Glasnow, you want to avoid the high pitch counts and you want to avoid the beginnings. I know that he has a tendency to walk a lot of guys, but you know, you maybe, maybe you let Chris Archer throw six innings and give up three runs. That's perfectly okay. Um, and like I said, he's been a workhorse in the past. I know it's gonna, uh, the, the shoulder injury that he went through that kept him out last year is, is a wild card. Um, but you know, looking at some other guy, looking at the other guys on the staff, I think there's no pitcher better than Chris Archer to, uh, predict to have the highest inning total. I'll go with Ryan Yarbrough. I think he's been one of the most consistent. And I think it was written on the site last season by Austin Ryman. I believe that he is the most consistent pitcher on this Rays team. That was before they lost Blake Snell and Charlie Morton. And the guy, I think they've really grown to trust as his career has gone on. Not like they didn't trust him beforehand, but you saw him transition from a bulk pitcher or a headliner, as I like to say, into a true starting pitcher. Fangraphs has him and a lot of other projections have him at 28 starts this year. That should get him around 150, probably more so. And other than like Tyler Glasnow and maybe Chris Archer, those are going to be the only other guys that I could see eclipsing more innings. Tyler Glasnow, and I think we saw this in the postseason and we could see this in the in the regular season, especially with the Rays' ability to bring guys up, uh, you know, up from Durham constantly. They might only want him going four, maybe five innings, most outings. He's still relatively young. He's only 27 years old this year. I think they're going to be very careful with Tyler Glass now, especially as they try to bring all their pitchers back up to a full 162-game schedule. Ryan Yarbrough, though, I think he's in a great position to to eat up a lot of innings this year for the Rays. Yeah, totally. I, I love that. Yeah, Ryan Yarbrough's been a, a fascinating pitcher to kind of watch blossom. Um, you know, it, he was one of those guys where a lot of people were saying, you know, like uh, the the opener is – the opener kind of gave him a path. All I, I think he's done, all he's done is proven that like, no, he actually is a legitimate major league starter. Um, and I, I think as a race fan, I think we're, we're all glad that, you know, that that's what he is now. And that's what he's going to be. And let's go maybe. So Darby and I, like I said, Darby and I played the over under game with pitchers innings totals. And we went through all of the guys that we considered potentially bulk slash starting pitchers. Brian, is there a guy that's like not on the major league roster or is right now listed as a probable reliever that you think could be a surprise 100 inning guy for the Rays in 2021? Yeah, um, I'm going to go with uh, Luis Patino here. 
Um, he's got a couple of guys ahead of him on the depth chart, even in, even on the AAA roster. Um, I think Josh Fleming is ahead of him. Um, I think the Rays are probably going to maybe call like in a, in a vacuum. I think that Trevor Richards is probably going to get a call before him, but if Luis Patino really forces the issue, um, and an injury comes along, I think it's very possible that he could be, um, the, the, the first call. I mean, he has, he probably has the best stuff, the best pure stuff. Um, we know that he brings the high octane gas. Um, he has some major league experience. So, I mean, it's not like he hasn't, you know, been there before. Um, and we know that he's already stretched out. Um, so he's going to get the call to be a starter before somebody like maybe Brett Honeywell, maybe before somebody like Shane McClanahan, guys like that. So, um, yeah, I, I would, I would love to see it. Uh, but yeah, Luis Patino is uh, that guy for me. Surprise hundred inning guy. Uh, yeah, I love that answer. I, it's clear how much the Rays value him. It's going to be really interesting to see how they handle his workload. Triple A season was delayed by a month, and so I don't think we're going to see minor league baseball really until May. Um, if I'm going to, you know, be a wishful thinker, I'll go with Brent Honeywell. I, to be honest, in my heart of hearts, I don't think I would he's love be that hundred inning guy, but yeah. he's a guy I would love to see do it. Don't think it's going to happen this year, but my goal for Brent Honeywell would be to pitch a hundred innings at any level and slowly build yep. back up. And that in 2022, uh, maybe we see him contribute to the Rays big league team. I mean, he's going to have to, he's going to be out of options. So I'll, yeah, I'll just say Brent Honeywell is a wishful thinking type of answer, but at any level, whether it be the majors or in triple a Durham. Now, Brian, this is kind of an oddball question. And there's really no way to kind of plan, for, like to try to make an educated guess on this answer. Ray's save leader for 2021. Um, last year, I think it was 13 different guys recorded saves for the big league team. This year, you're probably going to see a similar number, especially with 162 games. But if you had to take a stab at it, right now, Roster Resource has three different guys that are listed as a closing pitcher. I don't think any other team in major in major leagues would have that classification in their bullpens. But if you had to pick one, it doesn't even have to be out of those three. Who would you pick as the Rays saves leader in 2021? Oh man. Um, I think I'm going to go with, um, I'm going to go with Pete Fairbanks here. Um, not because I think that he's going to be designated to the ninth inning role. Um, I just think that uh, clearly Castillo and Anderson are the guys that they are going to put in the tougher matchups. Um, and of the three pitchers that are listed as closers, Pete Fairbanks, and this is not a knock on him because he could be the best pitcher out of the bullpen in a lot of teams, but I think he's the third best pitcher out of those three, which really says something uh, about Anderson and Castillo. And I think because of that, I mean, it, it all depends on, you know, if Castillo and Anderson have both pitched on back-to-back -back days, then maybe Fairbanks is the first guy out of the bullpen too. So there's a, there's a lot of uh, mixing and matching and shifting around that's going to go on. But um, I think that Pete Fairbanks is probably going to get the most appearances in the ninth inning um, assuming that, you know, the game has been close for a while and Nick Anderson and Diego Castillo have already been used in their spots. Yeah. I like that answer because the Rays definitely see it as an A and a B bullpen and they will kind of mix and match those A bullpen guys in tight situations. The ninth inning is the thing that doesn't move. Uh, in the seventh inning, you're playing the Yankees and they might have uh, Glaber, Judge, Stanton coming up in that inning. You want probably your best pitcher going up against those guys. And that might not always be Pete Fairbanks on the night. It's probably going to be Nick Anderson. You deploy, 
Nick Anderson in the seventh, maybe Castillo in the eighth, and then Fairbanks gets the ninth. So I like that that train of thought. One last question. We kind of saw Pete Fairbanks emerge into that role, into that A bullpen role in 2021. Could you see another reliever join that A bullpen this year or join the quote unquote stable of arms this year? Yes. Uh the correct answer is Jeffrey Springs. Uh, I, I I'm a little biased because I because I wrote about him, um, but again, like he's he's another one of those guys who just has that vertical movement. He's got that invisible fastball. He's got that fastball that moves upwards. It's hard to see. He gets a lot of swings and misses. Um, he's got a changeup that he throws to righties that gets a lot of swings and misses, and he has a slider um, that he throws to lefties that induces a lot of weak contact. His fastball gets swings and misses to both righties and lefties. Um, he, I'm confident that he can get righties out. I don't know if the Rays will use him in that role. Um, but yeah, I think he's somebody who definitely has a bullpen potential. Um, I also really like what I've seen out of Cody Reed. Um, Cody Reed, just because of like his arm angle and the way his stuff moves, I think he is more of a lefty specialist or like kind of a, uh, a, a, a long man in, in certain games. Um, but as far as uh, somebody who can pitch and leverage and somebody who can get a lot of swings and misses, um, I think Jeffrey Springs is the guy who can make that jump. And interestingly, just so everyone knows, after I wrote my thing about Jeffrey Springs, uh, Dan Samborski on Fangraphs actually uh, picked him out as a breakout candidate uh, on Fangraphs. So that was, uh, that was cool too. So um, I, think, I think other people are seeing what the Rays are seeing out of Jeffrey Springs. So that's, uh, that's very interesting as well. Yeah, it's, it's a guy we've talked about it. Like they traded Ronaldo Hernandez, and again, their thoughts yeah. and feelings about Ronaldo Hernandez might not have been the same as what they were a year or two ago. Uh, but this, they still traded a valuable prospect to get Jeffrey Springs and Chris Mazza. They like these guys a lot, the same way they liked Cody Reed when they traded for him last summer. So, going to be interesting to follow. I like the Cody Reed answer a lot. I think he's got a lot of potential. I, I also think Chaz Rowe could end up if if everything goes well for him by the end of the year in one of those roles as you get closer to, to October where we hope the Rays are participating in the postseason. So that's going to do it for this week's episode of Raise Your Voice. Brian, thank you so much for coming on and it's so enlightening learning about so the spin rate and the spin efficiency because it's only it's, it's not going to go away. Like the, this information, these terms aren't going to go away. And when they're being thrown at you, whether it be on the on the site or on a on a broadcast or on MLB Network, like it's, it's important to try to learn them and embrace them uh, because they they kind of help provide a, a better understanding of the game. So so Brian, thank you for that. Yeah, thanks a lot. Always a pleasure. And thank you to everyone who listened. As always, make sure to head on over to DRaysBay.com to check out all of the great spring training coverage. I'm your host Brett Rutherford, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Yeah.